Well, let us stand together as we read God's Word. Our sermon text this morning coming from Exodus chapter 31. And if you don't have a Bible in front of you, it's always good to have one open as we study God's Word together. So you can grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be nearby. And I believe you'll find this morning's text on page 71. We have now, for many months, been slowly but surely journeying our way through this great book of redemption and revelation and exodus, and I trust, Lord willing, that we will come to the end of our studies in just four weeks' time. And Exodus 31, all 18 verses, is what we want to look at together today. So let me read those verses for us, then pray for our time, and, and we'll begin together. So let's hear now as, as God speaks to us through His Word. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and in cutting stones for the setting, and carving wood to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Oholiab, the son of Ahishamach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability, that they may make all that I have commanded of you. The tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, the pure lampstand with all its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of the burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his son for their service as priests and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy places. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath, because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days work shall be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on the Mount of Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we do pray that this morning by your Spirit's power, that just as you inscribed the law upon those stone tablets of old, that the Spirit would inscribe its truth upon our hearts, that we might know its grace, that we might understand its power, that we might obey your commands. So give us ears that are eager to hear. Open our minds that we might receive this truth in our hearts, also that we might repent and follow you in faith. Help me to preach as you say that I must, that Christ would be exalted in our midst, 
and that you would edify us as we desire for you to glorify your name. And we pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. You could look through virtually any list that's ever been put together. A list of the greatest Christian artists in history. And you're guaranteed to meet a man named Johann Sebastian Bach. He is understood to be probably the foremost composer of classical music during the Baroque period, such as his dominance, that many of you probably know more of his compositions than you would actually realize. And some of you know, however, that he was an earnest Christian. And when he was at the age of 48, he finally nabbed a copy of Martin Luther's translation of the Bible into German. And Johann Sebastian Bach, he devoured it as though it was this long-lost treasure, making all these annotations in the margin and giving his kind of extended commentary on various points. So, for example, when he came to 1 Chronicles chapter 25, he said, this surely is the chapter that lays the foundation for God-pleasing music. And it's just a chapter that lists out the musicians that belong to David's palace and kingdom. One scholar has said of Bach that he was a theologian that just happened to have his instrument be an organ that he played, of course, along the way. And so if you were to read through any of those lists of great Christian artists, you'd be bound to meet Bach, but I dare say you wouldn't be bound to meet a man named Bezalel that we meet this morning in our text, that if you ever actually read the Bible in earnest to try to discover what God says about spirit-filled artistry and his service, you'd be hard-pressed to find a man more preeminent and significant in service to the Lord with his craftsmanship than this man named Bezalel. So for the last six chapters, we've seen God place in Moses' hands his home-building plans. What it means for Moses, and we're going to see along the way this morning, other men to build the tabernacle, which is referred to as the tent of meeting. It's going to be God's temporary dwelling place with his people, the nation of Israel, as they're wandering their way uh, through the wilderness. And what God has said up to this point, He's given Moses instruction on what belongs in the tabernacle. And those are things that we've seen, just this long list of furniture that we even had read off in our hearing from verses 7 through 11. The furniture that is this shadow and symbol of heavenly realities. And then we saw after that, it wasn't just words and commands about what belongs in the temple, but who belongs in the temple, which is namely the priests. The clothing investments they were supposed to wear as they were holy unto the Lord and their service unto Him. And so we come to the end of God's instruction to Moses. This is the last Moses is going to hear anything from the mountain of God before he's to go down. And once again, after many weeks, he's going to meet with the people. So you would have to think, or you certainly could be forgiven for thinking, that you would come to this climactic, crescendo-like conclusion in Exodus 31. But it's really far from that. He's just saying, Moses, well, I've named these two guys. And take these other guys and build what I've told you to build. And then the second half of the text is all about this long commentary and reiteration on the fourth commandment that we studied several months ago of remembering the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So students, when you come to a chapter like this, you should be asking the question of what's the connection between chapter 31 and what we might expect to have come with this crescendo-like conclusion. And I think the simplest way you can make the connection between chapter 31 and what we've seen all the way from chapter 25 and following is the previous chapters have talked about the why 
and the what of the tabernacle, where chapter 31 is much more about the how and the when of building the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is, of course, going to dominate the final chapters from verse 35 through 40 after this interlude of God dealing with his people with the sin that was going on down at the bottom of the mountain when Moses came forth. But the simple main point you want to see from this text is God's call that the Lord's people do his work in his way. And you might say it's simply commanding us to do the Lord's work in the Lord's way. That really is all this chapter is pointing us towards. But I think we're going to see, I hope, I trust and even pray by the end, it's pointing us forward to someone greater, to something greater. So, of course, if you glance down again at chapter 31, it's got two distinct parts. First, we'll notice working for the Lord. And then when we get to the Sabbath commentary, resting in the Lord. So working for the Lord and resting in the Lord. Working begins, look at verse 1 and 2. Yahweh said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. Now, Bezalel's name almost seems like he was predestined to be the foreman of God's construction company when it comes to the temple. Because his name essentially means in the shadow of God. And what was the tabernacle but a shadow of God's heavenly home. But of course, it's important to recognize God isn't calling this man just because of his name. There's sovereign initiative. There's sovereign selection, isn't there? That's what he's saying in verse 2. I have called by name Bezalel. And I wonder if you might be able to even say of yourself this morning, the Lord has called me in his sovereign grace and love and commissioned me into his service. And you should know, I hope, that God always equips those whom he calls Thus, what we're told in verse 3, And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge in all craftsmanship. So kids, you could play a Bible trivia game of sorts with verse 3. How many times before this verse has the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, been mentioned in God's Word? And you should hold up two fingers, just twice. It was in Genesis chapter 1 where the Spirit was hovering over the waters at creation. It was in Genesis 41, a more obscure reference, when this man named Joseph, he was interpreting Pharaoh's dreams and Pharaoh in amazement. He cried out, in whom can we find one like this who has God's Spirit? This is the third time the Spirit's referenced in all the Bible. It's the first time that the Spirit is said to have filled a specific person for a specific work. And I think we'd be right to say that this isn't, of course, the first time that the Lord has done that. But surely it's significant that Bezalel, of all people, is the first one singled out as possessing God's Spirit for God's work. Some of you that are college football fans can rewind the clock to 2014 when the Ohio State Buckeyes starting quarterback J.T. Barrett went down with a season-ending injury. Of course, all experts at the time assumed that the season was lost, uh, but enter backup named Cardale Jones, who subsequently led the Buckeyes to Big Ten title, national championship as well, resulting in in one journalist calling him one of the most unlikely sports heroes of the last five years. And you could rightly say that Bezalel is one of the most unlikely spirit-filled heroes to find in Scripture Because you would, I think, be right to have expected by this point in God's Word 
that maybe the first one singled out as uniquely filled with the Spirit for God's work would have been some great patriarch of old that God spoke to directly these covenant promises. Not even Moses, the Redeemer, the Mediator, the Liberator of God's people is said to have been filled with the Spirit in this specific way. Of course, not even his brother Aaron, the high priest and servant in God's house, has been said to be filled with the Spirit in this way. We know that they were most undoubtedly filled with God's Spirit. But it's this construction for men that stands out as filled with God's Spirit for this work of building God's house. And isn't it reminding us of the great truth that all vocations are meant to be holy to the Lord when God's people are working? That what you need to know about what it means to work for the Lord is you must work by God's Spirit. That you might be an employee, that you might be an employer, you might be a student, you might be a teacher, you might be a husband, you might be a wife, you might be a father, you might be a mother, whatever you do, you need the Lord's Spirit. Even the words that are used there in verse 3 of understanding, wisdom, and knowledge. You can kind of trace that triplet throughout the Old Testament. You'll find it in key places about what it means to be a builder for the Lord. You can just write down one reference in Proverbs chapter 24, verse 3 and 4, where these three words show up. And this is what it means to be a builder of a godly home. That you have the Spirit that brings wisdom and understanding and knowledge. So you must work by God's Spirit. And you see that it's not just Bezalel that's going to be appointed uniquely to this work. Look at verse 6. God says, Behold, I have appointed with him Oholiab, the son of Ahashimach, the tribe of Dan. And much like with Bezalel, his, his name seems to indicate that he's almost predestined for this work. Because you can translate his name as something like the tent of my father. And here he is going to go about building his father in heaven's tent. And it's not just Bezalel and Oholiab that are appointed to this work. You see, as verse 6 continues, God says, I've given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded of you. And of course, you'll see through the next few verses that they're going to make all that the Lord had commanded of Moses. That of course, when it comes to building God's house, when it comes to serving in God's house, this is very much a community Endeavor. It means working in God's Spirit. It also means working according to God's Word. Look at verse 11 at the end. After listing out all of these things they're to make, God says, According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. Israel wasn't thus allowed to innovate or iterate on God's Word. They were to do that which God called them to do, and only that which God called them to do. I wonder... What has the Lord called you to do? And if you are working in His Spirit, if you are working according to His Word, and isn't it the same way in the church life as well, that we're going to go about this work of worship as God's people, doing precisely that which God has called us to do, and only that which God has called us to do. So first of all, working for the Lord, and that leads to resting Resting in the Lord, which means when it comes to serving Him, it's not just about working in His Spirit. It's not just about working according to His Word. It's also telling us it's about working at His time or according to His time. A man named Robert Ingersoll was one of the celebrated agnostics of the 19th century. My kids, an agnostic just means someone who believes there is a God, but believes you can know nothing about that God. So you essentially live as if there is no God. 
He was raised a Presbyterian. And later in life, through his public writings and speeches, he seemed to harbor this unique disdain for the denomination of his youth. He said at one time in his writing, No church has done more to fill the world with gloom than the Presbyterian. And so you might say, Dear Mr. Ingersoll, what is it that we have done wrong? Well, he said, Nothing ever was, nothing ever will be more disgusting than a Presbyterian Sabbath. And you're not reading the context of our time rightly if you don't realize many even Christians think the same thing today. Many even church leaders think the same thing today. And I want you to know what God thinks about the Sabbath. Four things in particular from the back half of our text. Number one, the placement of the Sabbath, verse 12 and 13. The Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. It's interesting where the Lord places this further commentary on the Sabbath. I mean, you could go back to weeks before and perhaps listen to our, our study on the fourth commandment as we were walking through the Ten Commandments one by one. But you, you can see here when it gets to the end of the tabernacle building plans, there's this extended commentary on the Sabbath. Then if you turn over to chapter 35 as the tabernacle is getting ready to be built, what kickstarts that sequence is, yet again, words about the Sabbath. And it seems to be that God wants to remind Israel that He wants to tell His people that you can't have reverence for His tabernacle if you just first don't have reverence for His day. Maybe said in a more contemporary way. You can't have reverence and love for God's house if you first don't have reverence and love for his day. And this language you notice in verse 13, translated in my ESB as above all. It's almost a contrast in many ways in the original. It's a way in which God seems to be telling Bezalel and Aholiab and, of course, Israel as a whole. You should be excited about building the tabernacle. But don't be so excited that you forget about my Sabbath. Because I will not be happy if you forget about my day. And isn't it? Also something that we often fall into, zeal for doing things for the Lord, that swallows up an observance of His one day in seven. I wonder what placement the Lord's day has in your heart. Well, notice, secondly, the purity of the Sabbath. You see verse 13 continues into verse 14. This is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you, and you shall keep the Sabbath, because it is holy for you. And it would have been striking to the world around Israel that you would have an entire nation shut down one day in seven. For what did that announce to the world but their holiness to the Lord? That they belonged to Yahweh this shutting down one day in seven was a way in which the nation was saying to the watching world, we trust our God so much that He's going to provide for us even when we're not doing anything. That He will meet every one of our needs if we would but just rest in Him. So there's the placement, there's the purity. Notice, thirdly, the penalty for breaking the Sabbath. Verse 14 into 15, whoever does any work on it, shall be put to death. That soul shall be cut off from among his people. 
Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Now, kids, if you wanted to know uh, just how much God's anger belonged to breaking the Sabbath in the Old Covenant, uh, you can circle those words there at the end of verse 14. Not only is the individual to be put to death, that individual is also to be cut off from among his people. There's only one other time in all the Old Testament that you could commit a sin that God says must result in you being put to death and be cut off. And it's sacrificing your children to the pagan god Molech. That's how much anger belongs to the Lord when his people break his Sabbaths. And some of you have been with us recently in our evening service. When we've been reading through Ezekiel, and it was a number of weeks ago, we came to Ezekiel chapter 20, which speaks about Israel's corporate breaking of God's law, which very much in that chapter focuses on what exactly we're reading here in chapter 31 of Exodus. But just two verses from Ezekiel chapter 20 says, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules and my Sabbaths. They greatly profaned. And so, of course, God meted out the covenant curses, the penalty that he promised to his people for breaking the Sabbath, which was exile from the promised land. See, the placement, the purity, the penalty that belongs to breaking the Sabbath. Fourthly, finally, the permanence. Of the Sabbath. You see verse 16 and 17. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Do you not wonder sometimes? And if part of the reason we've gone sideways in thinking about Sabbath keeping is we've forgotten that it means, God means, for it to be for our refreshment, for our good, and for our joy. Because you see, of course, in those two verses, twice God speaks of the Sabbath belonging forever. Generations it belongs forever. It's a sign, a covenant sign forever. It's why throughout the Old Testament to break the Sabbath is essentially akin to breaking the covenant itself. So intertwined is the Sabbath as the sign that belonged to the Mosaic covenant. But of course, when you think about the permanence of the Sabbath, you rightly should be asking the question that we pursued weeks ago. But let's remember what its answer should be for us even today. What's the relevance of God's fourth commandment? What's its permanence even for us today in the era of the new covenant? Well, the simplest way you can kind of work through the reality of the ongoing validity of the Sabbath and the fourth commandment uh, for God's people is to recognize that when Exodus continues to talk about the Sabbath, it's always rooting it in creation. It's not primarily in the Old Covenant itself, but the sequencing is important. Of course, they're working and then resting the last day because they're always looking forward to that rest to come. But we believe, according to Jeremiah chapter 31, that one of the great blessings of the new covenant, if not the great blessing of the new covenant, is a poured out spirit upon God's people who takes this very law and writes it on the heart of his people. That which was once external is now internal. And of course, now in the new covenant age, the Sabbath has been transposed, if you will, to a new day. 
Because no longer are we working and looking forward then to the rest that is to come by resting on the last day. If you look through the example, no doubt, in the New Testament of the early church, always seen Sunday, the first day of the week, as this day of rest, as this day that belongs to the Lord, because we are, of course, resting and then working, because our working isn't toward the Sabbath, our working is from the Sabbath, that the Lord Jesus Christ has even inaugurated in part now, for He Himself is the Lord of the Sabbath. That's, of course, the confession and conviction of our church, that Sabbath-keeping, Remembering the Sabbath belongs to faithful Christian individuals, faithful Christian homes even today. Uh, Some of you may not agree with everything that our church believes and confesses to be true about the fourth commandment. I mean, we need to know that Romans chapter 14 and Colossians chapter 2, for example, say we're to obviously honor and respect differences of conscience conviction on this issue. But you probably don't need to be that much of a savvy student of recent generational history in the Christian church uh, to realize that there always seems to be a very quick slide away from devotion to the Lord as soon as observance of the Lord's Day disappears from a congregation, uh, disappears from a church. It's actually something that's very easy to prove throughout the centuries of church history. And surely there's something instructive for us even in that. As this day was given for our joy, it's a day given for our Refreshment, so solemn seriousness ends the text. Look at verse 18. God gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on the Mount of Sinai two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God, working for the Lord, resting in the Lord, serving him in his spirit according to his word and at his time. This is what it means to go about the labor of building the tabernacle. Now, I have, for many occasions, and I assume many of you are probably like me, had reason over the years to put together something that was of self-assembly nature. And perhaps many of you, like me, have often wondered if Satan is in the (laughs) self-assembly furniture, because it never goes the way that it's supposed to go. The pictures never correspond, or perhaps it's just that I'm that inept when it comes to self-assembly furniture. Emily knows this reality in her home to such a degree. If the package was to arrive early and I'm not home, she's in somewhat of a hurry to try to get it done before I get home because it (laughs) tends to not go that well in our household with self-assembly furniture. But I tell you that because aren't you grateful that when it comes to the Lord's dwelling place, it's not a self-assembly reality, that he's given his sovereign initiative to his people, that he's going to go about building the house by His Spirit, according to His Word, at His time. Of course, pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. For even Hebrews chapter 3, when talking about the tabernacle, and Moses building the tabernacle, says, of course, that's pointing us forward to Jesus Christ, who is the builder of God's house. And then it says, and we are God's house. We are not some sort of self-assembly project spiritually. For God to dwell with us, it belongs to His sovereign initiative and grace. So I want you to see two final things about God's sovereign grace revealed in this text. Number one, I want you to see God's work of recreation. God's work of of recreation. It's even why I've titled this sermon, Spirit and Sabbath. That's the two sections of the text. But we've said in weeks past how building the tabernacle is pointing us forward to heaven in many ways. But at the same time, it's pointing us backward to Eden. 
And just as the Spirit in Genesis chapter 1 was hovering over the waters at the creation of all things, here is the Spirit now hovering over the hearts of men who are going to create the dwelling place of God with His people. In much the same way, just as the Sabbath was this capstone to God's creative work in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the Sabbath is meant to be this capstone to building His house where He is going to meet with His people, where He is going to be with them. And so it's telling us that redemption doesn't come without recreation in the work of God's family. And at the same time, recreation doesn't remove the reality of work, that God's sovereign call upon your life is, of course, one that is a sovereign summons to the Savior. He might recreate you, refashion you after His image. But likewise, isn't it a sovereign summons to work, to serve in His Spirit, according to His Word, and at His appointed time? So you need to see the Lord's work of recreation Number two, I do want to underscore at the end that you are called to love the Lord's gift of rest. Some of you that are familiar with well-known economists may have heard of the name of John Maynard Keynes before. He's one of these well-known economists throughout the ages. And in 1930, he wrote, which is something of an infamous essay now that was titled Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. So he looked into the future. And Keynes said, by the time we get to the 21st century, man will have so evolved in his work practice that there will be nothing more than a 15-hour work week in the 21st century. Man's great business is going to be about finding out how to make good with their five-day weekend, not five-day work week. And in quoting from that piece, a recent article from the Atlantic magazine said this, the religion of workism is making many Americans miserable in the 21st century. And I'm sure that many of you know that in your own life. How life, perhaps maybe in a noble intent, with earnest desire to honor the Lord, becomes little more than a religion of of workism. And so what you need to see at the very end of this passage is how it's pointing us to the gospel and the good news reality of what Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of the Sabbath, has done. Because you might be in here today and you're working to be loved. Not realizing that all your working is only bringing wages of death. The penalty of judgment to fall upon you. Because of course there's nothing you could ever do to work your way into God's dwelling place. But of course the good news of Jesus Christ who is the Lord of the Sabbath is he's done all the work for you. We don't work to be loved. We work because we are loved in the beloved. We don't work in order that we might get rest. We work because we already have rest in Jesus Christ. That He has done that which we couldn't do to give us that which we so desperately long for. As in that great heartbeat of the gospel found in Matthew chapter 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So, of course, doing the Lord's work. In the Lord's way, participating in the service of building His house, which we're all doing, even in the New Covenant Church this day. It means nothing more than looking to His recreative work. And of course, delighting in the rest that His Son provides, because doing the Lord's work in the Lord's way means doing the Lord's work in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.
Father, we do ask that you would help us by your uh, mercy and grace to know the love that is ours in Jesus Christ, that we might repent of the ways in which we have tried to curry your favor and ways in which we have tried to, by our own good deeds, receive your love. We do pray that we might be called of Jesus Christ, that your spirit would fill every heart in the room this morning, that we might receive the rest that belongs to those that have come to the Savior, that our lives even might preach the holiness. The Sabbath belonged to the nation of Israel, that the holiness of the Lord of the Sabbath would mark our homes, it would mark our minds and our hearts as we long to serve you, we who are your people being built up into your dwelling place through the Spirit and by the Son. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.